The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by two very, very interesting American academics called Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane, who have written the cover piece for Harper's Magazine, which, uh, for Americano listeners who don't know, is probably the most interesting magazine on the American left. And the title of the essay that they've written is Why Are We in Ukraine? And the stand first or subtitle of the article is On the Dangers of American Hubris. Ben, I will start with you. Mm -hmm. Could you run us through your argument, which is very provocative and I think has caused some provocation already, uh, caused some reaction, I should say, in America. Why is America in Ukraine? Well, first, I have to distance myself slightly from the the title, which is a terrific title. It's an echo of a famous piece in Harper's that Norman Mailer wrote during the Vietnam War, Why, Why Are We in Vietnam? And um, uh, the only reason I would disassociate associate myself somewhat from that is that some critics of the piece have pointed out, understandably, that we are not, properly speaking, we, the United States, are not in Ukraine. And, and we are not, and I, I don't think they even really got the reference to, to the, the Norman Mailer essay, but we're certainly not in Ukraine in the same way that we were in Vietnam. In other words, we are expending enormous treasure, but we're not expending any blood whatsoever. So uh, in, uh, in that way, we are not in Ukraine, but of course we are um, our, our prestige and our um, military and intelligence assets are heavily, heavily engaged in the conflict there. So um, that's just the, the first point I'd want to make. Uh, the second is that Chris and I, when we set out to write this piece, we wanted to be as, as, as honest as possible. And we didn't want to engage in the kind of throat clearing that is entirely understandable, but in some ways unhelpful. We didn't start with a two-page preamble about the unpleasantness and nastiness of Putin and of the Putin regime, because we just don't think that that's relevant to the discussion and to the debate that we should be having. We do believe that, as, uh, as John Mearsheimer actually just pointed out in a talk he gave yesterday, that and Chris, you'll correct me if, if I'm speaking too baldly, uh, but that um, given the way that Putin and, and I should say Moscow seized the world, Russia had really very little choice in launching this war. It was essentially a war that Russia had warned against for 20 years and that, that those warnings just went completely unheeded. And in fact, uh, sort of um, arrogantly ignored by the United States and by NATO. Uh, and so we see this as a um, as a war fought by a great power to ensure that it's near abroad, as the Russians would call it. We might call it its, uh, its sphere of influence uh, is not encroached upon by a hostile military alliance. And NATO is absolutely a hostile military alliance. And it has been for quite, uh, to Russia, and has been for quite some time. You know, I think what gets lost very often in debate on this side of the Atlantic is the fact that this was not only foreseeable, it was foreseen. At the time uh, that the United States decided to move ahead with NATO expansion, George F. Kennan, who was the great American Sovietologist, who was the 
father of the containment strategy during the Cold War, warned that this would lead to very undesirable outcomes in U.S.-Russian relations if we went ahead with NATO expansion. Um, but more to the point, it's not just NATO expansion, because after all, at the end of the day, the Russians acquiesced, I won't say they accepted, but they acquiesced in the membership of the Baltic states and Poland. But it was clear in American foreign policy-making circles that Ukraine was a different story. In fact, Nicholas Burns, who wrote his memoir in about this um, and is now director of the CIA, warned at the time of the Bucharest summit in 2008 that if the United States tried to get Ukraine into NATO, that would be, I believe his own words, been the reddest, crossing the reddest of Russia's red lines. And it's the, the idea that American policymakers seem not to have any sense of the fact that Russia has a history, it has a strategic and political culture, it has great power interests in terms of security and its influence in in the region that surrounds it, and that all of these things would come into play if the United States tried to push um, the membership of Ukraine into NATO. And now, what's, what's very interesting to me, and Ben, you can throw in your two cents with, is that we all know that on the eve of the Soviet party, the Russian invasion, a full-scale invasion on February 24th, that the U.S. had excellent intelligence, President Biden said a number of times in the week before um, the Soviet invasion, so boy, I'm back in the Cold War time, back before the Russian invasion, of Ukraine, that we knew it was coming, we warned them against it, um, and the Russians made clear why they were doing it. Um, we, we had an exchange of diplomatic notes uh, between uh, Russia and their foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, laid out exactly what the Russian concern was. And instead of negotiating, instead of saying, well, maybe maybe the, the idea of taking Ukraine into NATO is not going to be a very good idea. Maybe the Russians have a point. Maybe we should sit down and talk with them. Instead, all we heard from Washington is NATO has an open door policy. We're never going to shut the door to Ukrainian membership. And that's basically, I mean, not trying to be a crude American, but that's basically like giving the middle finger to Russia and saying, your interests don't count. We don't care about your interests. But we can sit down and talk with you about what your concerns are. And I think that was you know, a grave mistake on our part. Uh, allow me to push back, uh, Christopher, first of all, on that a little bit. I mean, I think the message from the West to Russia about Ukraine is, it's fair to say that it's been very muddled. I don't think... Uh, it's ever you call it an open door uh, message that you know we're never going to shut the door on Ukraine joining NATO. But there have been times in American history. I think Biden has said it in the past, uh, where American leaders have said no. It's our policy is not to have uh, Ukraine in NATO. And I know Kamala Harris said it a couple of weeks before the invasion. But do you not ever think that Russia has um, interpreted? The American or American muddled American thinking about Ukraine as NATO expansion when it wasn't necessarily. Well, if, if Chris, before you answer that, um, I, I just want to quickly interject. I think Chris actually was quoting um, Secretary of State Blinken, who insisted that the door to NATO would remain open to Ukraine, and he was really just echoing a policy. That has been, as as I understand it, consistently and with un, and unerringly promulgated by Washington since the Bucharest summit in 2008. I don't think there's been any retreat from the policy that, as as was as was enunciated in 2008. It's not a question of if; it's a question of when. 
but Chris, I'm sorry, I'll I'll, I'll let you. Uh, no, I mean Ben Ben is exactly right. And if you go back to the 2008 Bucharest summit, NATO summit, that was held in Bucharest, um, and you look at the communique, that's exactly what was said that. Uh, there was no commitment to a definitive date for Ukraine to join NATO, but that it would join NATO at some point in time. And for the Russians, the, the fact that the U.S. was unwilling to categorically rule out NATO membership for Ukraine and has made it clear that it's not if, it's when uh, that happens. If you're sitting in Moscow, you draw the conclusion that you've made your point pretty clear, as clear as can be to the Americans, that this is an unacceptable attack on your national interest, on your historical interest. And the consequences were pretty obvious. And again, I think the point is, to me, we knew it. We knew absolutely what the Russians were concerned about mm. and we knew why they were concerned. They communicated that to us. They had a, a diplomatic note that was sent just before the war started where they stated uh, the kinds of points that they wanted to negotiate over. Number one was, you know, Ukraine and NATO. The United States didn't want to talk about it. The United States was committed 100% and still is to this idea that there are no limits that will rule out NATO membership for any interested state. Um, Ukraine, again, is going to become a member of NATO at some point in time, according to U.S. policy. And the fact that the U.S. refused to talk about this, the the amount of assistance that even before February 24th last year that the United States was giving to Ukraine in terms of weapons and training, advisors, intelligence, all of this, if you're sitting in Moscow, looks like a pretty hostile policy. I mean, I know Americans don't believe in, quote, fears of influence, which is surprising to me since we were the ones to have the Monroe Doctrine at one point in time. But it's fears of influence have been a traditional technique of great power politics to limit or avoid conflicts that could lead to war between great powers. And now I, when I was doing research for my book, The Peace of Illusions, I did a lot of primary source research. I found uh, a statement that uh, was, I think, attributed to Vice, then Vice President Henry Wallace, where he said, the United States does not believe in spheres of influence of the balance of power. And, you know, you read that as someone who is an IR theory person, as I am an American foreign policy person, as I am. You sort of shake your head. And when, when I talk about this with my students, I say, what is the real meaning of this? Oh, it's that the United States won't accept any other great power sphere of influence but that our sphere of influence basically is meant to be worldwide. But, uh, I mean, from a again, from a, a NATO perspective on open-door policies, Ben, uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're, at, at one stage there was talk of Russia being part of NATO, and if a sovereign country wants to be part of NATO w within NATO's terms... Why should it's not necessarily an act of expansionism or aggression for NATO to rule it out, for, to not rule it out, I should say? Well, um, I disagree entirely with that. NATO isn't a um, isn't a charity. Um, it's not a um, it, it gets to choose who belongs to it. So it can at any point say and uh, no, thank you. Uh, uh, we understand your interests, but uh, we 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 we're, we're not going to pursue this relationship. And while it's true that and and Freddie, the point you made earlier that look, the United States um, has been uh, its 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 ardor concerning Ukraine's membership in NATO has waxed and waned 
Uh, it's waxed and waned since it, it has waxed and waned since since 2008. I think um, if um, Obama and Trump, for that matter, had their druthers, they would have arrested that momentum. Uh, but the foreign policy apparatus pursued it, regardless of the of the instincts, um, I would say, and uh, uh, of 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 both of those presidents. Um, but with and here though timing is important because with uh, uh, with the election of, of of Joe Biden, Biden has been an ardent supporter of of NATO expansion, as by the way was Hillary Clinton, and the policies uh, that were enacted immediately after the uh, Biden took office were um, a, a uh, were ramping up. That momentum. So, in other words, the the charter on U.S.-Ukrainian relations again emphasized that point. It is a question of when, not if, Ukraine will join NATO. That was within the context of uh, in, uh, increased and intensified U.S. Uh, U.S. NATO and Ukrainian um, military cooperation. That was part of that. That was part of that policy document, and also increased NATO, U.S., um, Ukrainian um, enmeshing and interoperability of their military forces. All of that was not lost on Russia. So, in other words, I think I mean timing is important. I think Russia really saw that there was a. Um, intensification of this momentum, a momentum that really has been going on since the early 1990s, and that the time to strike, as it were, was now, um, was when Russia did strike. In other words, that in most ways, Ukraine was already a de facto member of NATO. The kind of military-to-military cooperation, um, the kind of joint exercises that were being conducted, the advisors, the supply of equipment, all were making Ukraine essentially, in um, in all but name, uh, a member of the alliance. And I think it's also important to remember that, you know, as Chris said, this was from Moscow's point of view. They had said over and over again, "Don't do this." <laughs> you know, we see this as 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 a terribly um, threatening act, and we see the the general U.S. Uh, and Western effort to bring Ukraine into its camp as needlessly hostile and somewhat and, and mysteriously hostile. You know, in, in other words, the idea I remember um, I was at the uh, I was at the Rand Corporation in the early 1990s and Rand was sort of the center of the thinking about the need to expand NATO. And I said, look, the logic of this, don't you understand the logic of this is in, in, inevitably you're going to be bringing Ukraine into NATO. And at the time, people said, oh, well, you know, that won't be for 30 years. And by that time, Russia will have changed and it won't regard this as a threat. And that's where I think um, what Chris was saying earlier is just so important. We refuse to see the world in anything but our own terms. So that, you know, the obvious question, which has been asked over and over again, but is nevertheless an absolutely legitimate question, would be the following. A, what would the United States' reaction be if Russia made moves to bring Canada and Mexico into uh, a security arrangement with it and against the United States? What would be the American reaction if there were joint um, exercises conducted off the Mexican coast with Russian or Chinese and Mexican force, uh, uh, naval forces, as there have been the Black Sea um, with Ukrainian forces since 1997, the United States would never tolerate that. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just um, the, the point that you make is a good one, that it's not that there, that, that, um, there is a um, 
there is some, um, if not discontinuity, there's some, there, 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 ebbs and fl- there are ebbs and flows in American policy toward U- Ukraine, or at least in the attitudes of different American administrations. But the bottom line is that the, the momentum thrusting NATO eastward has been, you know, uh, has been inexorable. Mm. Well, and uh, another related point, Christopher, is that um, I suppose it's easy to get caught up in partisan politics. Trump is, you know, uh, a dove on Ukraine now, and uh, and Biden is a sort of accidental hawk, perhaps. But it's important to note, is it not, that you know Trump he got impeached over that phone call, but but he did. The Trump administration did arm Ukraine. It did continue the American policy of uh, antagonizing Russia through a military sport, through through sort of a, a quasi NATO status for for Ukraine. Did it not? Well, this is absolutely true, but it brings up a, a deeper problem. If Trump, and it's hard to give any great intellectual coherence to his views on foreign policy. But he certainly expressed qualms about the U.S. commitment to NATO, primarily, I think, because of the financial costs and his feeling that the Europeans weren't paying their fair share. But to, to use a term which I hate to see used because it really is historically inaccurate, but to the extent that Trump represented sort of an isolationist impulse in uh, the discussion about American foreign policy as president, he presided over an administration that was led by cold warriors, by liberal internationalists, by people who believe not in isolation, but in the expansion of American power. And I don't know if we want to go there this morning, but the reason that there is no turn in American foreign policy in the direction that many have imputed to Donald Trump is because there's no counter foreign policy establishment ready to move into positions in Washington and implement a policy that um, is not as hostile to Russia, not as hostile to China. That's just not in the cards, but it's unfortunate. Um, and again, I think it's, it's really important to understand how far back this goes and how foreseeable in many ways this was. Uh, just, just very quickly, there's there are two books that have come out in the last three years that are really shed a lot of light on this. One is Stanislav Zubok's book, Collapse, Collapse of the Fall of the Soviet Union. The other is Mary Surratt's book, Not One Inch, about what German reunification and what was or was not agreed to with respect to the eastward expansion of NATO. Um, the Zubak book makes it very clear that we know, for example, from President George H.W. Bush's so-called Chicken Kiev speech in um, 1991 that um, members of his administration understood that if the Soviet Union broke up, that the potential for nationalism in the post-Soviet space uh, to cause friction, conflict between Russia and the former Soviet republics was very high. Um, We know what the cause of the Soviet collapse was. It was economic. Forget that in 1990-91, store shelves were empty in Moscow. People had trouble obtaining food. And Gorbachev's government pleaded with the United States for a, a significant aid package, or to use the cliche, a new Marshall Plan. And the George W. H. W. Bush administration was not willing to go down that route. And the consequences were very foreseeable. The Soviet Union did, in fact, break up. And during this period, 1990-91, people in what was then the Soviet Union, people in Moscow, people in Kiev, people who would form the leadership of those states when they became the Russian Republic and an independent Ukraine, they all foresaw the problem of possible conflict between Russia and Ukraine, partly because of the Russian naval base at Sebastopol, because of Russia's historic claims to Crimea. Um, but but it, was, it was talked about openly 
in, in, in the top circles of the decaying but still extant Soviet Union that if the Soviet Union broke up, there, there was a real possibility down the road for conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, we know when the U.S. decided to push for NATO expansion in the Clinton administration, we absolutely did not care about what Russia thought about NATO expansion. We didn't want to listen to what the Russians said their interests were and why they viewed the expansion of what was a hostile Cold War alliance into not only their sphere of influence, but with the Baltic states actually bringing territories that were part of the Soviet Union into NATO. And this could only be perceived as a hostile act by the Soviets and I, by the Soviets and then by the Russians, Russian Federation. And you know, when we when Americans talk about foreign policy, and this includes our foreign policy establishment, we like to personalize everything. And so when you read discussions in about Ukraine uh, in, in America today, it's all Putin. It's all Putin. There's no Russia. It's like Russia as a state has disappeared from this discussion, the idea that Russia is a state, a great power with historic interest, a very definitive political culture, a definitive strategic culture. And anyone who knows about this would know, as Kennan recognized, uh, that this was going to lead to trouble. And again, I go back to the Nicholas Burns memorandum that he said, um, he was ambassador to Moscow at the time of the Bucharest summit in 2008. And he warned Washington very explicitly and very strongly that bringing Ukraine into NATO was opening a Pandora's box. And it was crossing his words, quote, the reddest of Russia's red lines. And ben, nobody uh, listened in Washington. Yeah. Betty, um, in your piece, you talk, both of you talk about spheres of influence and, and in, in sort of traditional great power terms. With, with the rise of China, uh, and we've heard for a long time now, over a decade now, about America's Pacific tilt, and that, you know, America's grand strategy is moving towards China containment. Why is it, do you think, that Ukraine now has become this, uh, this point of pre-the war? Why did Ukraine become... Uh, this point of fixation in among American foreign policy establishment minds when the general direction of American foreign policy thinking was turning towards China? Well, I, I, I think you have a, um, uh, in, with, with both U.S. policy toward NATO and Russia and U.S. policy towards China, you have a, a, the, the most bizarre uh, agglomeration of uh, of uh, domestic forces and traditions. Um, so, on the one hand, we were talking a moment ago about sort of the ebb and flow of American policy toward Ukraine, um, and and I would allow that um, as that 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 both. Obama and Trump say um, had their, their instincts did not um, did not favor a an aggressive policy regarding Ukraine's um, uh, absorption or uh, NATO's absorb, uh, 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 absorption of Ukraine. But you know you have someone like Victoria Newland who absolutely was pushing that policy. Um, and she was in both the Bush administration, where she was uh, 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 Vice President Cheney's um, advisor, um, and she was in the Obama administration, and now she's in the Biden administration. And countering Obama's somewhat dovish views towards Russia-Ukraine policy, you had people like Samantha Power. So, and you would think, well, Samantha, what does Samantha Power and, and Victoria Newland have in common? Uh, they do have in common a the most expansive notion 
of America's role in the world, which is essentially um, to spread um, uh, what they characterize as American values to the world at large. And this includes, so um, th therefore, states that they see as antithetical to American values are defined, if so facto, as enemies. Um, that's Russia, and it's also China. So that the impetus, uh, I think, behind both policies is an expansive, almost never uh, a limitless notion of the United States as a messianic state. Um, but specifically, I think, uh, and, 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 and you're right, Freddie, it's, it's, it's very strange that just when China was emerging as the great new force that, that, that liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans could both rally behind as the enemy, we got involved in this war in Ukraine. I think it's, um, it's what one heard over and over again and still hears is that, you're, that one of the lessons that we have to make very clear is that the United States will stand up to aggression and that if a foreign state is going to make a, a, a move in its sphere of influence that we regard as unwelcome, that we will counter that. And so just so kind of the lesson of China and Taiwan, or, or the lesson that the United States, I think, wants to make very clear to China is, is we are going to do in Taiwan what we are doing in Ukraine. Um, and uh, so there is this, uh, it's, 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 it's a bizarre, it's, it's the most sort of monolithic consensus of foreign policy, of sort of an aggressive foreign policy that I've ever seen. Um, it, you know, it's just, it, it's bizarre. And I think if I were, the rest of the world, I would think would find it somewhat frightening. I would just disagree ever so slightly with Ben. I don't think there's anything bizarre about American foreign policy. I think if you look back at the historical traditions that underpin American foreign policy, even way before um, the United States became a great power, the United States has always had this sense of itself as exceptional. I mean, that's the cliche, American exceptional because of our democracy, exceptional because of our values. Um, so that is certainly in play and put directly in play by the Biden administration with President Biden's frequent statements almost ad nauseum now. Oh, this is a battle between autocracy and democracy. Well, it is because the United States is making it a battle. But there was no titanic clash of worldviews here on the part of the Russians or the Chinese. This is America. This is our view of the world. And Louis Hartz, the late Louis Hartz, wrote one of the most important books about the role of liberal ideology in American, American politics. And liberalism is sort of the hegemonic ideology in the United States, but it's also the ideology of American hegemony abroad. And the U.S. seeks to spread its ideals and beliefs and values because it believes that it can't be safe. The United States believes that it cannot be safe in a world where there are other political systems, other great powers. And so, you know, after, actually, after the Cold War ended, we heard a lot about this concept of unipolarity, the United States as the only great power following the collapse of the Soviet Union. But if you go back and you look at what American policymakers were thinking about in terms of the post-World War II world that they wanted to construct. Even as World War II was still being fought, American policymakers wanted a unipolar moment. Now, the Soviet Union sort of got in the way of that, but in 1990, it did us the favor of collapsing, and American policymakers had nauseam talk about the virtues of unipolarity. Um, and so you have this marriage of power, expansive relative power, plus a proselytizing expansionist ideology, and it's this confluence of, of factors that lead to America acting as what um, the great diplomatic historian Walter McDougall calls 
a crusader state. Um, and, and I just would point out that when, when we were on the eve of war in February of last year, that it was clear that once the war started, that the, what, what American policymakers were hoping for was that the, so that the Russian Federation, the Putin regime would collapse and that there would in essence be a regime change. Um, and you can find a lot of quotes that were in major newspapers at that time that sort of betrayed that belief that this war would be a good thing because it would represent the end of Putin, the end of his regime, the end of his political style, and the emergence of democracy in Russia. That was sort of a fantasy land view of the world. And one other thing I guess we should probably talk about more is China, because as Ben pointed out, you know, sort of the strategic framework that American policymakers view the world, it, it's interconnected. Everything is interconnected. So if you believe that America's security depends on its credibility, its resolve, uh, and you're worried about the rise of China as a strategic competitor, you, as a policymaker, want to draw the line over Ukraine to make it clear not just to Moscow, but also to Beijing that you will see America resisting any other great power's emergence. And I, I think that's sort of buried in this uh, whole Ukraine uh, crisis. Mm. A lot of it, a lot of it's about Russia, but not all of it is about Russia. A good part of it is actually about China. And standing up here over Ukraine is a way of sending a message to China. Don't think that we're weak. Don't think that we're irresolute. Don't think that we'll back down if China. If you guys decide to go after Taiwan, we're showing you right now in Ukraine what we'll do to resist it. Well, I quite see that we're, uh, the unipolar moment is gone. We seem to be moving into a multipolar world now, and Russia and, to a larger extent, China are playing a big part of that. But if we are in this multipolar world, do you not have to consider, either of you, whoever wants to answer this, the 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 push and pull factors working in Eastern Europe, so Poland, uh, the Baltic states, uh, to a certain extent Hungary as well. I mean, they are uh, not uh, completely wrapped up in American exceptionalism. Uh, and let me put it to you without wanting to sound too too um, aggressive, that perhaps from your perspective, you have a sort of reverse American hubris that you think America's bad, you know, the bad side of American... Uh, expansionism, NATO expansionism, is causing trouble. Where actually, you know, if you talk to uh, people in Poland, policymakers in Poland who aren't necessarily NATO hawks, they are alarmed about Russia and they do see the need to repel Russia. Chris, I think we'll both want to answer this. If 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 I could um, go first, I would say that um, to go back to a point I was making earlier. Uh, I don't. Uh, I didn't disagree with anything that Chris said about the American notion of uh, of itself as a crusader state. What I do find surprising is the domestic consensus around that idea. I mean, there's always been a. Um, it's stronger than I think it ever. It has been since at least the very, very um, coldest days of the Cold War. Uh, in that there isn't there isn't any pushback um, to this to this notion of the United States as a as a as a crusader state. During the Vietnam War, you had you know, Senator Senator Fulbright. You had, to a lesser extent, I mean, you, you had people like George Kennan who were arguing against what we, what Chris and I would call this hubristic aspect of American policy. I was just watching a BBC documentary on the year 1951, and the, um, the narrator was intoning about the 
stifling consensus of America at home and of American foreign policy. And this was fueled by this rabid anti-communism. And this, the, the, the film that was being sh- shown in the background uh, was of people protesting Soviet policy in 1951 toward Ukraine. And they had signs uh, celebrating the Ukrainian insurgent army of the Second World War. And this was, again, though, the, I mean, the idea, though, that this was, this was seen as an example of this frightening, you know, Cold War-style American arrogance. And thank God we're beyond that. But, of course, we're not beyond it at all. But, Freddie, to, to answer your question or, or to address your question, I would say that it's absolutely understandable why Poland um, is concerned with Russia. Um, I think Poland will always be concerned with Russia. If Russia were a completely democratic um, state and an open society, its security interests would clash with Russia's. Um, And uh, the same thing goes for the... uh, for the Baltic states, um, there, there's an expression that the Me- uh, that that Mexicans always use, which is, you know, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. It's it's a problem being um, so close to a, a a great power. In some ways, your freedom of maneuver is going to be uh, curtailed. Um, there are going to be real limits on your independence as a state, at least as far as your foreign and defense policies go. And of course, that's not that is as true for Canada and Mexico as it is for a Poland, even in a de- even with a a democratic Russia. I mean, it's I'm I'm not saying that the United States exercises the same or. Um, it, uh, exercises a, a, um, uh, a nefarious or it exercises the same influence on Poland, say, as the Soviet Union did during the Second World War, Not, nothing of the sort. But just that the idea that Canada can never have a completely independent foreign and defense policy. The United States is never going to allow Canada to make alliances with any country it sees fit and to conduct a poli- any sort of policy that the United States sees as a great threat to it. As a matter of fact, of course, Canada unified, the Federation of Canada was formed in direct, uh, you know, because it saw a threat from the United States after the, uh, after the, um, after the Civil War, the American Civil War. So I absolutely see the, I, I understand the idea that from the point of view of the Baltic states, from the point of view of Poland, they would like to have a security guarantee from the United States. And that such a security guarantee will ensure that, um, that Russia has a, uh, does not exercise an overbearing influence on it. The question, though, becomes whether that's in the United States' interest. I mean, a, a security guarantee is a security guarantee. And the, you know, one thing we haven't discussed, which we do discuss in our piece, is the nuclear dimension of all of this. That security guarantee is, is a nuclear guarantee. It, 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 it entails ultimately a nuclear aspect. And the question that the United States always asked, or that some people always ask during the Cold War, well, are we really going to sacrifice New York for, for Berlin, is absolutely you know, is something that Americans should consider. Um, or should have considered before um, making those guarantees. So I would say it's absolutely, and, and the, 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 the division within NATO between those countries that do feel threatened by Russia, or that do, that, that do fear, I shouldn't say threatened, I, that, that fear Russian influence, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the states of Eastern Europe and the, the Baltic countries and those states that don't fear that France, Germany, you know, is great. Um, I think that that, you know, that there are real fissures in NATO that are going to become greater the longer this war lasts. Uh, Chris, I'm sure you, you'd like to add a lot. No, I think, um, ben is making some really important points. And, you know, let's start with why there is no, George Cannon or G. 
Jay William Fulbright. Well, those guys were giants. They were giants of their time. But it's not entirely true that at least in the American Academic Security Studies, International Relations Community, there isn't a group of people who are questioning the broad spectrum of American force, the broad sweep of uh, this idea that we need to spread democracy, that we need to remain our status as a unipolar hegemon in the international system. There are these people, but they haven't won the day uh, in terms of debate. They're not occupying important positions in the foreign policymaking apparatus. So um, just like during the Vietnam War, um, the, the people who are making the trenchant arguments against what U.S. policy is just don't seem to be able to have any inside influence on shaping American policy. Um, ben also makes a good point about public opinion. I mean, we could go back and find lots of quotes. Um, you know, Dean Acheson, after World War II, who, before he became Secretary of State in the Truman administration, when he was still undersecretary um, in the first Truman administration, said that if you left foreign policy up to the American people, they would get it wrong every single time. And I think it's important to realize that at a certain level, the making of American foreign policy and grand strategy is not a popular democratic process in America. It is an elite process. The foreign policy establishment is an elite, and uh, it has this view of America's role in the world that depending on how far back you want to go, um, you can trace it at least as far back as Woodrow Wilson and certainly to um, World War II and its aftermath. There are two important points here that I think it's, that we should not let go by. When the Soviet Union was breaking up and the fate of the Baltic states was uh, whether they were going to be independent or whether they were going to be part of whatever emerged uh, from the collapse of the Soviet Union as part of Russia. The Baltic states had a very active diaspora that was influential in Washington and created the idea that the Baltic states should not be subjected again to subordination to Russia. The Polish and the Ukrainians also have very powerful, well-financed diasporas. And I'm just waiting for some American scholars to do what John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt did with the Israeli lobby and write a book that exposes the influence of the diasporas representing the interests of the Baltics and Poland. Yes, these states have their own view of the world. They're entitled to that. But their interests are not necessarily American interests. And that leads to the point that Ben said about nuclear weapons. Everyone knows, plenty of stuff was written about it, that the United States could never, and NATO could never defend the Baltic states with conventional forces. So ultimately, this is the same thing that you had during the Cold War. American security guarantees are based on a commitment to use nuclear weapons first to respond during the Cold War times to Soviet and today to Russian conventional attacks. And This is something that gets hardly any traction with the American public. Um, During the NATO Intermediate Intermediate Nuclear Forces deployment crisis in the 1980s, the Washington Post took a poll, and I believe it found that 82% of Americans believe that U.S. policy was to use nuclear weapons only in response to an attack on the United States homeland. That's not true. We were committed during the Cold War to use nuclear weapons if West Germany was attacked. And today, we're committed through NATO and through um, our policies in East Asia um, to use nuclear weapons if necessary in response to, to China and Taiwan, in response to an attack on the Baltic states. And um, you know, this is dangerous. It hardly ever gets talked about. Every now and then, this issue sort of escapes from its containment chamber. 
Um, notably, I believe it was in 1979 at an International Institute for Strategic Studies meeting in Brussels, Henry Kissinger was quoted the next day in New York Times as saying, well, I guess I should say, this was supposedly under Chatham House rules where he was not to be quoted at all, but the next day in the New York Times, he was quoted, and I believe almost verbatim the quote was, don't you Europeans keep asking us to make commitments we cannot possibly mean, and that if we did mean, we should never want to execute. But the foreign policy establishment doesn't really want us to have a debate about this. Mm. I mean, we use the term nuclear umbrella. Um, I guess, you know, in places where it rains a lot, we reach for our umbrellas to protect us when we go outside from the rain. But the American nuclear umbrella doesn't protect the United States. It commits the United States to take great risks to protect other states, namely allies. And I think there should be more discussion about the wisdom of that policy here in the States. Does that mean then that uh, in, in real politic terms, a great power is uh, a power with a significant nuclear arsenal? Because, I mean, I can understand that Russia is, in terms of civilization, in terms of history, in terms of land mass, arguing in terms of population, is a great power. But if you look at its performance militarily in Ukraine, uh, it has not been that impressive. Uh, I think that's a, a fair thing to say. Um, and so, therefore, the reason why you have to consider it a great power in terms of strategy is because it has nuclear weapons and may be willing to use them. I wouldn't say that um, Moscow is any more willing to use nuclear weapons than than Washington. I think that strategists in, in Moscow understand as well as strategists in, the, in, in, in Washington um, that, or at least I hope, um, that you know, the, a resort to nuclear weapons will probably mean Armageddon. But the problem is though, it's not so much, I, I, it's not so much that um, it's not the rattling of nuclear sabers that I'm mostly concerned about. It's that when you when you make a commitment, um, a, a security commitment, as the United States has done, say, in with the Baltic countries, that gives enormous latitude for those for 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 the country that you are that enfolding in your alliance to conduct policies that might be provocative, that might be um, unwise if it didn't have a, you know, sort of this big, powerful superpower across the, the, the ocean to protect it. Um, and those unwise and um, provocative policies could trigger um, a chain of events that could lead to some kind of, of you know, that could lead to military confrontation that could lead to nuclear war. Nobody ever thought, you know, everyone was, you know, always very concerned that, look, you know, during the Cold War, it wasn't really so much, oh, my God, the day after tomorrow, um, the Warsaw Pact is going to sweep through the Folder Gap um, in an effort to, what, grab Paris? And that the United States is going to be confronted with a situation where it might have to launch uh, tactical nuclear weapons to prevent that, and that those tactical nuclear weapons would then uh, escalate to, to, to full-blown war. It was more like, oh my God, there could be, what if there is some sort of rising in East Germany, and the Soviets tried to suppress that, and by suppressing it, that um, leads to um, some sort of reaction on the part of the United States, and that leads to you know, sort of uh, uh, a nuclear confrontation. Um, there are all sorts of ways that, you know, you. it seems unwise to me that you want to bring in un, uh, um, unstable elements into a security pact when that security pact has a nuclear dimension. So that's not exactly the same thing that ultimately, yes. I mean, actually, though, Freddie, to answer your question, that gives Moscow a veto power over a lot of things that properly, you know, that in a perfect world, you might not give Moscow a veto power over. Um, you might not say, well, look, 
Let's take the example of Ukraine. I mean, people make the argument, it's a perfectly logical argument. Well, Ukraine should be able to conduct any, you know, it should be able to have any foreign policy it wants to have. It should be able, it, it, it should be able to advance whatever um, national goals it wants to. It should be able to, you know, choose whatever allies it wants to choose. Well, yes, in, a, in the abstract, in a vacuum, that's true. But when its neighbor is a uh, extremely powerful country that regards Ukraine as an important strategic asset, not in that it must control Ukraine, but it certainly doesn't want a hostile power controlling Ukraine. Therefore, it has, you know, that that cir- that that, cir- that that limits Ukraine's freedom of maneuver, and it it means that Russia can exercise sort of a a influence that in a abstract perfect world it might not uh, it, 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 it shouldn't be able in, in, in a world solely defined by justice it wouldn't be able to influence but as I was pointing out earlier the United States has that same power in terms you know with Canada mm. I mean there's no it's it's um, uh, and and I pick Canada because it's the most I mean we, you know we we've certainly exercised that power in the Caribbean but um, uh, there, there are real limits to what the United States will tolerate with Canada. It will tolerate a lot. It will tolerate, you know, Canada disagreeing with the United States on all sorts of things, but it will not tolerate a, a completely independent Canada. And the same way that, you know, Russia has shown that it's not going to tolerate a completely independent Ukraine. And, you know, the problem with, you know, you mentioned the Baltics and Poland, and and I hesitate to say this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. You know, Chris and I sort of approach, we're both sort of arch realists, but our, our kind of our political heritage is almost, is, is very different. You know, I, I come from the a strain of the American left. Chris comes from, a, you know, a strain of the American right. I mean, in fact, we disagree about almost nothing, but, you know, there, you know, there you have it. I remember during the Cold War, my parents, who sort of opposed American Cold War policy, just bemoaning the the influence of, say, Zbigniew Brzezinski on American foreign policy, because they said here, I mean, he, you know, he's he's looking at um, uh, the Soviet Union through a Polish lens. They also bemoaned the influence of the Cuban refugees in Florida on American policy. You know, what's very odd is you know, when we bring up the Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine and the Baltics, I remember um, an, uh, an American political commenter, Mickey Kaus, talking about the reaction in Beverly Hills. He lives in Beverly Hills among the old, um, the, uh, the old Jews to the idea that the United States should support Ukraine in this war. And these old Jews, you know, some of them were, you know, quasi, you know, were, had, had some sort of old socialist connections, but it wasn't really so much their socialist connections. It was their Jewish connections. They said, you know, we're going to support this country that has a, you know, that has, you know, an awesome history to live down in terms of its collaboration with, with Nazi Germany or element during the Second World War and, it's cele- and it, the, the way it has celebrated a lot of those people who collaborated as Ukrainian national heroes. Now, you know, it's complicated because they were Ukrainian national heroes and there were reasons that they would certainly oppose Soviet rule. But there's no question that when we bring in these, um, uh, when the United States brings in peoples uh, and polities with long histories it's um, into an, uh, its alliance system it's bringing in a lot of history <laughs> and a lot of um, and so uh, you could argue that of course Ukraine has all the, I mean if, if, if um, has all the reasons in the world for wanting the United States to um, enter into an ironclad security guarantee with it that um, that doesn't make that in American interests. That makes, I mean, it's certainly in Ukraine's interests. But you know, there's an important distinction to be made. You know, I I do wish the United States. One could make the same argument, by the way, about Taiwan. I mean, to the extent that there has developed a 
Taiwanese national identity. It certainly would want to be independent of China and would want America's support to guarantee that independence. But China sees things differently. And for the United States to extend a, you know, any kind of security guarantee, implicit or explicit, um, would, you know, absolutely run counter to China's um, interests. And, you know, that's another thing that we have to consider is that the more the United States, you know, the, I mean, it's, it's look, look at the Ukraine war. Um, it, it first was, I mean, um, as, as Chris pointed out earlier, a lot of people are saying, a lot of people argue that this war can only be, you know, really con uh, concluded satisfactorily if Russian military power is crushed, if Putin is um, ejected as leader, and even some people are suggesting if Russia itself has to be fundamentally reformed and maybe even, you know, broken up. I think, um, th therefore, that makes this war an existential threat to Russia. The same way that people will argue, I mean, in other words, if you're saying the problem is the ideology of the regime and the only solution is to, is to um, upend that ideology, then those other states, Russia and China, are going to properly understand that this is sort of a, you know, th these are existential conflicts. These aren't conflicts over, you know, or differences, you know, over some discrete, you know, difference in national interest. But, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of American policymakers in the American policy community now believes that the only solution to, you know, all, you know in the long run to our confrontation with China is if China changes itself domestically. And, you know, <laughs> there's, that's, you know, you're, 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 not, you're, you're in essence declaring, you're, you're, you're declaring war on essential Chinese interests. That's, uh, well, many fascinating points there, uh, particularly about American, the various diasporas in American society and their influence on politics. But I think that's the subject for another yes. podcast. Um, yeah. um, but I, I uh, Christopher, I'd finally like to say, Ukrainians like to talk about handing over nuclear weapons back to Russia. Uh, so then they were Soviet uh, nuclear weapons. And that th they will say, a lot of Ukrainian people say that America forced us to do that. Uh, to what extent do you think that's true, Christopher? And just quickly, because we probably should wrap this up. Uh, yeah. Do you think uh, that, if true, that was a very, very bad strategic mistake? I've talked him to death. Are you? <laughs> well, that's a very interesting question. And it sort of goes back to what we're talking about in terms of the risks of extended deterrence. Um, my mentor, when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, Ken Waltz, wrote a very famous Delphi paper for the International Institute for Strategic Studies with the title of Nuclear Weapons, Why More May Be Better. And the argument is actually pretty simple. If a state has nuclear weapons, and it says to the rest of the world, if you invade my territory, I'm going to use these weapons. I think that's a pretty credible threat. Um, I mean, does anybody doubt that if the United States were attacked, that we would be willing to retaliate with our nuclear weapons? But the game changes when you're talking not about defending your own territory with the protecting your own territory with the threat of nuclear retaliation, but talking about protecting or defending the territory of a third state, an ally, quote unquote, um, that's hard to make credible. I mean, Ben already made this point, but I'll just add something to it. You know, in 1961, President Kennedy took his first trip as a newly inaugurated president to Paris to meet with Charles Paul. And at the time, uh, people with a sense of history will remember that uh, France was trying to build its own independent nuclear deterrent forces, and uh, the United States really did not want that to happen. And so during the meeting, President Kennedy tried to dissuade de Gaulle, and basically he asked, well, why, why do you need nuclear weapons? We're, we're protecting you. We have NATO. 
And de Gaulle looked at it, and I believe you can find this exact quote in um, the memorandum of that conversation in the formal relation to the United States volume for the relevant year. Um, de Gaulle said, because you Americans won't risk New York and Chicago to defend Paris and Hamburg. And that's the real question nobody wants to talk about in the United States, about the meaning of our nuclear commitments, whether it was during the Cold War to Western Europe, whether it's with respect to Taiwan or Japan, um, threatening to risk a nuclear war to defend allies is basically saying, I'm willing to commit suicide, not to protect me, but to protect my allies. It's pretty hard to make that threat credible. And that's why the U.S. has this obsession since, since World War II ended with proving, establishing its credibility, quote-unquote, its resolve, quote-unquote. And I think that's why, in a sense, there is this connection between Ukraine and China. That we are basically sending a message to China right now saying that if you go after Taiwan, we'll support them the same way that we're supporting Ukraine. And it's clear. I mean, the United States has made it very clear that we're not going to allow Ukraine to lose this war. So where, where does that where does that take us in terms of thinking about the commitments that we're, we're willing to make? Thomas Schelling, who wrote several influential books on strategy back in the 60s, I believe it was in Arms and Influence, he said, it's more important, you have to really think about the implications of what he was saying, it's more important to defend parts of the world that have no intrinsic strategic value because by showing your determination to defend things that are essentially worthless, you're sending a message to an adversary that you'll fight for things that are more important. But but think about what Schelling was really saying. He said, it's more important to fight over things that don't matter than to fight over things that do matter. It's this inability to draw lines between what's vital and what's peripheral. And um, to come back to the question that you started to ask at the beginning, you know, if American policymakers were smart, and I'm not sure that they are, they would go back and think, you know what? We don't want to get involved in a war with Russia. We don't want the burden financially or the risks militarily and strategically of defending Ukraine. Let's let them have their own nuclear weapons and go home. But that's too radical, I suppose, to occupy yeah. peace, peace in the foreign policy debate in the United States. But I, I do think Waltz was right that it's a lot more credible for a state to have its own nuclear deterrence than to rely on the, quote, extended deterrence, unquote, provided by the United States. Well, it, uh, it sounds to me like Ukraine's great mistake was being strategically important. But uh, Benjamin and uh, Christopher, thank you very, very much for coming on to Americano. And um, uh, it was a fascinating and terrifying discussion. Uh, and I hope... Great, pl- great pleasure. I hope we'll get you on again. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroze, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.